Chapter Twenty Five, Section Two, of J. B. Beery's The Student's Roman Empire, Part Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linny. The Student's Roman Empire, Part Two, by John Bunyel Beery, Chapter Twenty Five. Literature from the Death of Tiberius to Trajan, Section 2. Literature under the Flavian Emperors All the Flavian emperors patronized literature, although none of them was so devoted to it as either Claudius or Nero. Vespasian was not unskilled, even in Greek eloquence, and he wrote memoirs. We hear of Titus writing a poem on the appearance of a comet, and Domitian was devoted to poetry in his youth. But Vespasian also actively encouraged literary talent. He was the first who endowed Latin and Greek rhetoricians with a yearly allowance, a hundred thousand sesterces, from the fisc. He gave rich rewards to distinguished poets, and encouraged art in the same way. Domitian promoted poetical activity by the Capitoline and Alban contests. The effect of Domitian's despotism on literature may be easily exaggerated. His rule, though absolute, was not despotic until the later years of his reign, and it was only a small class of people who had anything to fear from his suspicion or jealousy. There is no question that men were not free to criticize the government or write republican tirades, which were really an attack on the imperial system but there were many other subjects for poets or prose writers to choose if they wished. The writing of contemporary history is the only branch of literature which must necessarily suffer under such a rule as that of Domitian. Gaius Plinius Secundus, A.D. 23-79, of Comum in Cisalpine Gaul, generally called the Elder Pliny to distinguish him from his nephew, was perhaps the most learned man of his time. His death, in the great eruption of Vesuvius, has already been mentioned. He had filled the office of procurator in various provinces, and had found time, amid his official activities, to pursue studies of the most varied and comprehensive character, and to write a great number of books. Besides lesser works, he wrote a history in twenty books, of all the wars that Rome ever waged with the Germans, a work entitled Studiosi, being a sort of introduction to rhetoric with examples, a grammatical treatise dealing with doubtful forms in declension and conjugation, a contemporary history in thirty-one books, probably reaching from the fall of Gaius to the year 71 AD, and a natural history. Pliny's nephew gives us an interesting account of the manner in which his uncle disposed of his time, so as to be able to get through an amount of literary work which another man, with all his time to himself, could hardly accomplish. Before dawn he used to attend on the Emperor Vespasian, in his capacity of Procurator Caesaris, and then proceed to the execution of his official business, which was thus finished early. On returning home, he devoted the rest of his time to study. After food, he read a book, making notes and extracts, for he read nothing without making extracts from it. In the bath, 
he either dictated or listened to something read out. In traveling, he always had at his side a secretary with book and notebook, whose hands in winter were protected by gloves. He deemed all time lost that was not spent on study. As he wrote so much, Pliny could attend little to the form or style of his writing, and his works are memorable rather for the quantity of matter which he put together than for the quality of the composition or the discretion of his criticism. The only one of his works which has been preserved is his Naturalis Historia, dedicated to the Emperor Titus in 77 AD. It consisted, according to the design of the author, of thirty-six books, to which was prefixed a list of the contents and an account of the sources which he used. This prefatory matter was afterwards issued, probably by his nephew, as the first book, so that the work in its present form consists of thirty-seven books. It gives an encyclopedic account of the results of natural science, and deals with physics, geography, zoology, anthropology, botany, and mineralogy. Pliny was conscious of the dryness of his work, which sometimes becomes a mere enumeration of details, and he endeavored to enliven it by introducing occasional descriptions in the rhetoric style, which was then in fashion. He introduces the different subjects of which he treats by general remarks, often in a moralizing tone, and very concisely expressed. Like Seneca and Columella, he frequently deplores the degeneracy of the age. In religion, he is hostile to the popular creed, but is not a follower of any particular philosophical system. His view of the universe is pantheistic. He inclines to the belief that the sun is the spirit and mind of the world, the chief ruler and deity of nature. The most eminent historians under Vespasian were Marcus Clavius Rufus, an orator of consular rank, and Vipstanus Messala, also an orator and a friend of Tacitus in his youth. The work of Rufus embraced the reign of Nero and the events of the year of the four emperors. He took an unfavorable view of Seneca, whereas another historical writer of the time, Fabius Rusticus, praised Seneca's political career. Messala, who had taken part as a military tribune in the events of 69 AD, wrote memoirs of his own experiences. Under Domitian, Vibius Maximus wrote a universal history. None of these works have survived. Of orators, M. Upper was one of the most distinguished, of jurists the Sabinian, Cilius Sabinus, a man of great influence under Vespasian, and the Proculian, Pegasus, reported to have been an incorruptible interpreter of the laws. More eminent than Upper and the other pleaders of the day was the teacher and scientific student of rhetoric, Marcus Fabius Quintilianus, who increases the goodly role of Spaniards distinguished in literature. Born at Caligurus about 35 A.D., he came to Rome in the train of Galba, soon gained a reputation for his eloquence, and became the glory of the Roman toga. Like his countryman Seneca, he was entrusted with the education of the imperial princes, the grandnephews of Domitian. He was the first to hold the professorial chair of rhetoric at Rome, founded by Vespasian. He was very successful as a teacher and acquired wealth. 
his great work, entitled Institutio Oratoria, The Training of an Orator, consists of twelve books, intended to be a complete guide to a man's education for a public career from childhood. He has a high ideal of the duties and rights of an orator. His treatise is not so superficial as those of Cicero on the same subject, but it is more popular than the technical handbooks on rhetoric. He has a sober, independent judgment and remarkable insight in literary criticism. He is not blinded by great reputations or misled by the current ideas of his age. On the contrary, he is remarkable for his depreciation of Seneca's style and for his opposition to contemporary prejudices, especially in his admiration of Cicero, whom it was the fashion to underrate as an orator, but whom he regards as a model. In his critical estimates, he is more inclined to be too lenient than too severe. Quintilian recognized clearly and condemned judicially the faults of taste, the mannerisms, the affectations, the marks of decadence which characterize the literature of his own age. The inspiration of nature, the natural expression of a simple feeling, was regarded as a baseness, a defect of art. Nothing was considered worth reading, or, at least, worthy of admiration, that was not far-fetched or that did not glitter with figures and phrases. Almost all our speech is metaphor. The antique, the remote, the unexpected were the fashion of the day. Quintilian frequently uses the word lasciwia, wantonness, to describe the nature of the modern style of writing. But, in spite of the protests of Quintilian and some others like him, the modern style was victorious. Men would not go back to the simple uncombed antiquity, even when, after the first impulse of reaction, they came to admire its excellences. We have already met Sextus Julius Frontinus as conqueror of the Ciliars in Britain, and afterwards as assisting the mission in establishing strategic posts beyond the Rhine. He was clearly an able man. Tacitus even describes him as a great man who would have approved himself great if he had not been hindered by the jealousy of the mission. Here he has to be spoken of as a writer on technical subjects. Two of his treatises have been preserved, and fragments of a third. The Strategemata consists of three books illustrating the artifices of strategy by examples chiefly taken from Roman history. Some later writer added a fourth book to the genuine work of Frontinus. The De Aquis Urbis Romae, composed in 97 A.D., in which year he held the post of Curator Aquarum and published after Nerva's death, furnishes us with a most valuable account of the aqueducts of Rome, their construction and administration. Frontinus also wrote a book on field measurement, Gromatica, of which only some extracts are extant. He died about the year 103 A.D. Whenever he was not holding a public office, he lived a retired life on the Campanian coast. His modesty seems to have been equal to his merits. He forbade a monument to be erected to his memory. The expense, he said, is unnecessary. Our memory will endure if we have deserved it by our life. Another technical writer of the mission's time deserves mention, 
the grammarian Emilius Asper, best known for his commentary on Virgil, which seems to have been a valuable work, but unfortunately only extracts remain. Epic poetry was diligently cultivated in the Flavian age, and we possess no less than four heroic poems, three of considerable length. Gaius Valerius Flaccus began his Argonautica in the reign of Vespasian, whom he invokes in the opening verses. The composition of the work went on during the following reign, until the poet died before the year 90 AD, leaving his poem unfinished in eight books. The death of Medea's brother, Absyrtus, and the return of the Argonauts to Greece were still to be told, and it seems probable that Valerius intended the whole work to consist of twelve books, on the model of the Aeneid. Valerius made the Argonautica of the Alexandrine poet Apollonius of Rhodes the basis of his composition, but took care not to borrow the tedious erudition of the Greek. He aims more than his model at sentimental and pathetic effects, and takes pains with the psychological development of his characters. He formed his style closely on that of Virgil, whom he imitates and echoes on every page, somewhat as Perseus imitated Horace, and, like Perseus, he is often difficult and obscure by reason of his artificiality. In versification he is as strict as Ovid. Another epic writer under Vespasian was Salaeus Bassus, but none of his works are preserved. It is related that Vespasian bestowed upon him a liberal present in recognition of his poetry, and Tacitus calls him a most perfect poet. In the same reign, Cariatius Maternus wrote tragedies on Roman subjects, and a Greek play on Thyestes. Titus Cassius Silius Italicus, 25 to 101 AD, chose, after the example of Lucan, an episode of Roman history as subject of an epic poem. He chose the Second Punic War, and his work, entitled Punica, in seventeen books, has come down to us. Silius went through the usual stages of an official career, which was respectable, but not distinguished. He held the consulship in the year of Nero's death, and was afterwards proconsul of Asia. As a senator, he was respected, but had no political influence. On the other hand, he made no enemies. After his proconsulship, he retired from public life, and devoted himself to the service of the muses. Now, says his friend Marshall, Helican is his forum. Proque suo que lebrat nunc helicona foro. Silius suffered from an incurable tumor, and it finally became so irksome to him that he determined to put an end to his life, and starved himself to death in his villa at Naples. Silius wrote his Punica in the reign of Domitian, whom he addresses in the usual tone of courtly flattery. Thou, he cries, O Germanicus, will transcend the deeds of thy kinsmen, Vespasian and Titus. And he celebrates the emperor as a greater bard than Orpheus. The poem was judged by a contemporary writer to display greater diligence than talent, a judgment which might be extended to most of the writers of the age. To a modern reader, the work is irredeemably dull. It abounds in imitations from Virgil, in incident as well as in language, and is not marked by the least originality of any kind. 
Silius was an enthusiastic admirer of the poet of the Aeneid, used to celebrate his birthday with religious solemnity, especially when he was at Naples, and used to visit the tomb of Virgil as if it were a temple. He has by no means the same skill as his contemporary Valerius Flaccus in introducing Virgilian echoes. The Punica ends with Scipio's triumph after the battle of Zama, and, like the Aeneid, is national in sentiment. But while Virgil's national sentiment is a genuine inspiration, that of Silius is a cold and correct reflection of the Virgilian spirit. Hannibal plays the part of Turnus. Like Turnus, too, Hannibal fights with a phantom, and Juno plays the same anti-Roman part in the poem of Silius that she had played in the poem of Virgil. The usual epic profanalia are duly worked in, the catalogue, the nechia, the games, the description of a shield, the dream-god, the battle on a river's bank. A tendency to stoicism can be distinctly traced in the poem, but, unlike Lucan, Silius never touches upon politics. He neither reflects on the present nor regrets the past. To him the warriors of the old republic are no longer the men of the forum and the capital, such as he sees before his own eyes. They have passed into the twilight of myths and demigods. To him, Scipio is a second Hercules, the achiever of labors, the tamer of monsters, the umpire of the divinities of pleasure and virtue. Hannibal is an ogre or giant of romance, who seems to vanish at the catastrophe of the story in a tempest of flame and cloud. This contrast with Lucan is an instructive indication of the change in spirit which took place at Rome even in Stoic circles during the last forty years of the first century. In the technical construction of his verses, Silius is excessively strict, like all his contemporaries. Publius Papinius Stasius of Naples, 45-96 AD, also composed epic poems in the reign of Domitian. He had inherited a taste for poetry from his father, who had celebrated in verse the burning of the Capitol in 69 AD. It was about to compose a work on the eruption of Vesuvius when he died. The younger Stasius won the olive wreath at the Alban contest in poetry, instituted by that emperor three times, but he was defeated in the Capitoline competition. His circumstances were comfortable, and he possessed a country place at Alba, which was perhaps a gift of the emperor. He enjoyed the patronage of a nobleman named Metius Seller. At the beginning of Domitian's reign he composed a mime, entitled Agawi. He promised, and perhaps began to write an epic celebrating the German expedition of the emperor, but, if begun, it was never finished. Three works of Stasius have been preserved, of which the longest and most ambitious is the Thebaid, which occupied him for twelve years. The subject of the poem is the war between Eteocles and Polynices, the sons of Oedipus, and it is treated very unequally. The first ten books are devoted to the preparations and are lengthened out with digressions and prolix speeches, while all the important events to which these preparations lead up, including the combat of the brothers and the story of Antigone, are compressed in the last two books. Books five and six are occupied with the episode of Hypsipyl and Archimerus. This want of artistic proportion is to some extent compensated for 
by careful finish in the detail, but there is little psychological skill in portraying the characters and little poetical imagination. Like Valerius and Silius, he regards Virgil as the epic mode. It is probable that he drew his material from the Thebaid, from the Greek poet Antimachus. Of another epic poem, dealing with the life of Achilles, only a small part was written, and this has come down to us. The first book of the Achillade tells how Thetis hid her son among the daughters of Lycomedes at Cyrus, how the distinguished hero made love to Deidamia and was discovered by Ulysses. Of the second book, only a short fragment remains. The style is less crabbed than in the Thebaid. The Silwai is a collection of occasional poems arranged in five books, and is the most interesting of the works of Stasius. Each poem was composed separately, and a number, from five to nine, afterwards collected in a book, which was published with a prose preface. The greater number of these pieces are in examiter meter, but some are in hendecasyllabic, alcaic, and sapphic meters. They were almost all written in the last six years of Domitian's reign. The first book is dedicated to the poet Stella, and one of the poems included in it is an epithalamium on the occasion of the marriage between Stella and Violentilla. Deaths and births, the handsome villas, the rich baths or the beautiful statues belonging to wealthy friends, form the subjects of other pieces. There is a lament composed on the death of the poet's father, in an eclogue, really a sort of familiar epistle, to his wife Claudia. One poem celebrates the birthday of the poet Lucan, whom he extols with enthusiasm, and the circumstance that he praises Cato and speaks sympathetically of the spirit of Lucan's poem shows that the mission's censorship of the press cannot have been as severe as it is sometimes made out to be. Sachs, however, regarded Lucan entirely from a literary point of view. He was a court poet, and was ready to purchase the favor of Domitian by adulation, both of the emperor himself and of his favorites. In celebrating the occasion of Domitian's seventeenth consulship, he adopted a tone of hyperbolic flattery. He composed a special poem to thank the emperor for an invitation to dine at the imperial table. He wrote lines on the locks of the boy Irinus, a favorite of Domitian. In the poems of Sachius, we observe a tendency to epigrammatic writing and an anxious care in the coinage of phrases. Skill in epigram is indeed the characteristic of the age, and Marshall is the characteristic poet. The verses of Marshall, it has been said, are the quintessence of the Flavian poetry. Marcus Valerius Martialis about 40 to 102 A.D., was born at Bilbilis in Spain, and thus makes the fourth Spaniard of the first century who holds a very distinguished place in literature. He lived for thirty-four years in Rome, and returned to his native country at the end of his life, 98 A.D. He was poor, and seems to have had no fixed employment. He possessed a small house in Rome, and a small country place at Nomenton, in the Sabine territory. Both Titus and Domitian conferred upon him, in recognition of his poems, the privileges which the law gave to those who were the fathers of three children, Ius Trium Liberorum. And he was made a military tribune, which gave him the standing of a knight. His flattery to Domitian, 
is even more extravagant than that of Stasius. He was a more needy and more eager bidder for court favor. Among his patrons were Irianus, Crispinus, and Parthenius. As an example of his glorification of the emperor may be quoted the verses in which he cries, Under what leader was martial Rome fairer and greater? Under what princeps did we enjoy such great liberty? Marshall can be convicted of being a time-server out of his own mouth, for, after the death of Domitian, he confesses that the reign of terror is over. It is conceivable, however, that here too he spoke less from conviction than from a desire to be agreeable to the new government. His epigrams were collected in fourteen books, of which each contains about a hundred epigrams. Most of the books are introduced by a preface, either in prose, like the Silvae of Stasius, or in verse. The thirteenth and fourteenth books, entitled respectively Xenia and Apoporeta, consist altogether of distichs on presents suitable for the Saturnalian festival, epigrams in the original sense of the word. The other books contain epigrams in the later sense of the word, short and often with a fine point. Besides these, there is an unnumbered book, known as the Liber Spectaculorum, consisting of poems which refer to the public spectacles at Rome. In the art of epigram, Marshall regarded Catullus and Domitius Marsus as his models. A large number of his verses turn on filthy subjects, but he is careful to tell us that, if his page is wanton, his life is honest. Lasciva est nobis pagina, vita proba est. He was, however, a man of no character. He prostituted his muse to the taste of the punlis. But he was a writer of the greatest talent, and his best verses are very good, indeed. His works give a most valuable picture of the Roman life of his time, especially, perhaps, its shady sides, and we meet many notable literary persons in his pages, such as the younger Pliny, Silius, and Stella. It is remarkable that he does not mention either Stasius or Tacitus. In his stinging epigrams, he always used fictitious names, such as Ponticus, Tuca, Tongilianus. He mentions living persons by their true names only when he praises or says something indifferent. Orontius Stella of Patavium, the friend of Stasius and Marshall, composed love poems, which were inspired by Violentilla, who afterwards became his wife. He celebrated her under the fictitious name of Asteris, but in the pages of Marshall she appears as Ionthis, a Greek rendering of her true name. The death of her pet dove is the subject of one of Marshall's epigrams. Another writer of erotic poems was Sulpicia, the wife of Calenus. Her verses were remarkable for their wantonness. Turnus, a distinguished satiric poet, also deserves mention. Many other verse writers in various styles, whose works have perished, are mentioned by Marshall, Stasius, and Pliny, but they are now nothing more than names. End of chapter 25, section 2